Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, publisher of Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation, the new book by Anne Helen Peterson. Esquire magazine calls Can't Even, quote, a razor-sharp book of cultural criticism. With blistering prose and all-too-vivid reporting, Peterson lays bare the burnout and despair of millennials while also charting a path to a world where members of her generation can feel as if the boot has been removed from their necks. Can't Even by Anne Helen Peterson, available now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Hey everybody, welcome to the Other People Show. My name is Brad Listy. It's good to be with you. I'm in Los Angeles. I hope it's okay wherever you are. It's uh, smoky here. The air quality index is bad again. The wildfires are burning. You know, enough already. And today I have on the program Jared Yates Sexton. He makes his return to the podcast. Uh, He was on a couple of years ago, I think. He's been a busy guy. He's published three books during the Trump presidency. Most recently, he published a book called American Rule, available now from Dutton. It's an examination of this country from its founding to the present day. It's an attempt to understand how we got to this point. And I've been uh, trying very hard to keep this show literary over the past several months because I feel like we all have enough of politics. We have enough of the election everywhere else we look. And this show, I think, functions as a kind of respite from that. But considering the fact that we're a week out from Election Day, it makes sense to have Jared on the program and to talk openly about this country and about the moment that we're in. I don't hide my politics. I don't like that. I know I probably lose some listeners by doing that, but that always bothered me when, you know, that always bothers me when I'm listening to somebody on television or on the radio who is coy. You know, just get over it already. What do you think? Tell me what you believe. I believe that Donald Trump is a complete disaster and a grave danger to Uh, the future of this country and the survival of democracy in this country. And I think 
there is loads of evidence to support that notion available right now in the public record. And I encourage you to vote. That's all I'm going to say. Please vote for Joe Biden. Please get out and vote blue in this election so that we can end this terrible scourge and this nightmare presidency. Please vote. And I would say, too, don't drop your ballot in the mail. It's too late for that. you got to plan your vote. You can fill out a mail-in ballot and then drop it off in person, either at a ballot drop box or at an election, like a county election office. You'll have to look up which one to go to near your uh, home. Or you can vote on election day, in which case make a plan. Lines could be long. Know where you're going. Know what you need to bring. Do you need ID? Do you not need ID? Bring ID anyway. Be ready. And know that if you're in line, they have to let you vote. Don't let anybody turn you away. Don't let anybody intimidate you. Don't let anybody stop you from exercising this most fundamental right. Okay. Uh, Obviously, this is on most everybody's mind. It has been stressful. I encourage you to uh, take good care of yourself. I encourage you to stay sane in whatever way you do that. But again, most importantly, please participate in this election. Every vote counts. Bring friends. Bring family. Vote blue. And if you're not sure why, email me at letters at otherppl.com and I'll explain to you why it's important. I'll break it down. I'll get on the phone with you and we'll hash it out. I'm that committed in this election. I should say I'm not a registered Democrat. You'll hear me talk about this with Jared. I'm not a registered Republican. I'm not registered in a party. I'm just a person. I'm looking at this trying to be an honest broker. You know, like the, I, I, I want rational, sane, humane policy. My God. So, I hope I don't sound too strident or self-righteous. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really just like everybody else. I'm just so sick of this shit, and I'm so tired of Donald Trump. I'm so fucking tired of his psychotic, sociopathic bullshit. His racist, misogynistic, inhumane, indecent, mean-spirited, cruel pulling kids from their mother's arms at the border, dog whistles, talking about how white supremacists are decent people, talking about how Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un are good guys. Fuck this guy. (laughs) Talking about how, you know, men and women who uh, lose their lives in battle are suckers and losers. Fuck him. Are we really going to reelect this guy? No. It's insane. He's a criminal in office, flat out, full stop, and it will be proven. It's already been proven, but it's going to solidify in the public consciousness in the days ahead. For some reason, these things take time. 
I mean, is anybody out there today besides Roger Stone actively, or, you know, it's like Roger Stone and Pat Buchanan. They're the only two people, I think, uh, in the public sphere who were like going around stumping for a Richard Nixon still. We got to a place where everybody realized Richard Nixon was a crook and a corrupt politician who needed to go. Donald Trump is that on a lot of steroids. And I predict that people who support him will get to a point where they either feel deep shame and admit to that shame about having supported him, or they'll just lie. They'll deny that they ever supported him. I think there's a real reckoning that's going to happen in this country at some point, hopefully sooner than later. And yes, there's going to be some subset of people who just continue to support him no matter what forever. And, you know, there's always going to be that element. I don't know what's going to happen in this election. I think you can't rule out cheating, corruption, judicial malfeasance on the part of federal judges and judges on the Supreme Court, the Trump uh, people will stop at nothing. Every dirty trick at their disposal they'll use. The only thing that can overwhelm those dirty tricks is turnout, which is why it's so critical that you vote. And the good news is I think people are voting in huge numbers. If you have not joined them yet, vote. I'm just going to keep saying it. You have to get out and do this. It's worth it. Yes, there's something in it for you. (laughs) You don't want to live in the America that Donald Trump has in store if he gets another term. It will be destroyed. That is not hyperbole. That is what is on the line. Some people out there listening might be thinking, wow, Brad's crazy. I'm not. You're crazy for thinking I'm crazy for saying that. If you don't understand the stakes, if you don't realize what this guy has been up to and what he will do if he is given four more years of power, you're not paying good enough attention. It is that urgent. But like I said, I'm uh, encouraged by the voter enthusiasm. I've been phone banking. I've been talking to people for the past couple of weeks, every single day, except for the weekends. And I've had some really interesting conversations with voters in Florida and Pennsylvania and North Carolina, Ohio, Michigan. It's a little bit stressful to do. It's a little bit awkward and uncomfortable and a lot of people hang up on you and yell at you and all this, you know, all the rest. But it's also the thing that I think has brought down my anxiety and made me feel like I'm actively doing something that, you know, has an impact. And it's just been interesting to hear from people across the spectrum. I think people are engaged. I think people are going to vote in record numbers. And I think if I had to make a prediction, I think that in a fair fight with all the votes counted, I think Joe Biden's going to win handily. I'm knocking on wood. 
I mean, look, I'm as superstitious as the next guy. I know what we went through in 2016. I know a lot of us are traumatized by it still. But I really do believe that this is a different year. And again, in a fair fight, I think Biden is going to whoop him. I think he's going to win. But we got to vote. It will not happen if you don't vote. So I'm just going to go on the record, and you can all laugh at me if I'm wrong. But uh, I'm going to say that Biden wins, and he wins with more than 300 electoral college votes. And I think there's going to be some craziness from Trump. I don't think he's going to concede in any kind of traditional way. I think we can all expect him to not concede the election, even if he gets his ass kicked. He'll never go on television and make that speech and be, you know, gracious like every other president in memory. And because there's going to be a lag, this is another thing you got to realize, because they're going to be tabulating votes and you're going to be seeing some numbers in real time as the votes come in. And there could be a lag between when the in-person election day votes come in and the votes that are, you know, sent by mail. So you could see Trump out in front with uh, in-person voters and then that lead will get eaten away at as the mail-in bo- you know, votes get counted. I feel like I need more sad music. Can't th- This monologue is going on so egregiously long. I just... Uh, I need some sad piano. So we know Trump is an asshole and he's not going to concede. And I could imagine a scenario where he goes out and blusters on television and tries to make the case that he's won, even though all the votes haven't been tabulated. And then he'll try to litigate his way to shut down the count. This is a scenario that uh, keeps me up at night. The only way to avoid that is to vote in such huge numbers that it's just, you know, that path is rendered inoperable for him. I'm trying to... I've been blogging, you know, every day since September, trying to keep a record of these uh, these days, this time in, a, in my life and in American history, and I gotta say, it's, it's, you know, I think back on the past four years and I don't think I'm really going to be able to understand, like, and this, this all assumes that Biden wins and that, you know, the madman is driven from power, which is, again, it's not a sure thing. Based on what I've been reading, he, like Trump has a one in 10 chance of winning based on current polling. And we, we know how polling went in 2016. It was off in state polls. National polls were, you know, it was like a point off. But still, things could change. I'm rambling. 
I don't, you know, I try not to do this in the monologue anymore. I just like to get to the, you know, the conversation. But, uh... I need to talk about this election. I just wanted to say my piece about voting. And to go on the record a little bit, just to, you know, for fun, with a kind of prediction. And to say, you know, assuming Biden wins and the country does come back to some version of sanity, it's going to take a while for the country and for, you know, us as individuals, I think, to, to grapple with what the fuck just happened over the past four years. And this is what Jared Yates Sexton has been all about since uh, 2015. When he started going to Trump rallies, you know, he's a fiction writer by trade, raised in rural Indiana in a uh, very religious working class family. That's his background. And he started going to rallies back in 2015, sensing that something was afoot, and has kind of by accident become a political writer and one of our more astute commentators. Maybe you've, uh, you know, maybe you follow him on Twitter. He's got a big Twitter following. And so his work has been helpful to me in trying to piece it together, in trying to put together this crazy puzzle. And to think about a better way forward. You know, it's not just about diagnosis and uh, darkness and understanding the darkness. It's also about trying to chart a course to a saner way of being as a country. So I appreciate, uh, you know, all the hard work that he's done. It's kind of an incredible amount of output in a four-year span. Three books in four years. That's, uh, that's a heavy lift. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So let's get to the conversation pre-election. Last time I'm going to say it, go vote. Figure it out. Make a plan. Don't put your vote in the mail. Don't drop it in a mailbox. Deliver it by hand. Vote in person. That's it. All right? Okay. 
So here we go with Jared Yates Sexton. His new book is called American Rule, and it's available now from Dutton. Here he is, folks. This is Jared Yates Sexton. I mean, you know, by trade, I'm a, I'm a fiction writer. And my, my entire idea and scope was like living in an imagination and trying to figure out how to use my writing to change the world. But in recent years, because I started covering Trump and I started covering politics, I've sort of had to reframe how I think about the world. And I've, I've had to really reconsider everything from how I absorb news to how I absorb, absorb information and how I go about life, whether or not I look through an optimistic or a nihilistic mindset. Like literally everything in the past four to five years for me has had to change. Well, I feel like, and I've said this before, um, maybe in conversation with you, but it's been in conversations around the Trump presidency in particular, that it's an incredible story. And it's a very complex story and it moves incredibly uh, fast. <laughs> and yep. I think that maybe somebody who is by trade a fiction writer might be unusually well-suited to cover it because uh, you got to try to put all the pieces together and, and kind of figure out the plot. That's what these past four years have largely felt like to me is trying to figure out what the fuck is going on uh, in real time. And um, it, it seems like there's going to eventually have to be like a rise and fall of the Third Reich type history of this era in American politics. Uh, or like my joke is the 50 part Netflix documentary, which feels inevitable, like produced by Martin Scorsese or whatever it's going to be, you know, <laughs> the prestige 50 part documentary. But it'll take that many parts to actually tell the story effectively is my point. I think that's exactly right. I mean, the problem with Donald Trump is everything is superficial, right? Everything is on this level of. What helps me, what enriches me, what empowers me. But underneath that, that, that tip of the iceberg, I actually, I was talking to uh, his niece, Mary Trump the other day uh, for my podcast. And, you know, she, she obviously has released this book that's all about, you know, the, the, the family dynamics and Fred Trump senior and how his sort of um, abusive socialization of Donald Trump led to who he is and how it's obviously led to this moment. It's Shakespearean. It's a big, giant story. And it's not just because of Donald Trump, but Donald Trump is an incredible metaphor for modern 20, 20th century to 21st century America. I mean, everything from, you know, the uh, the, the myth of the self-made man, even though he inherited millions of dollars and hundred, failed at hundred, Hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Yeah, just millions upon millions of dollars failed consistently. But the amazing thing was this was a person who understood very, very early on in a way that not most Americans really did understand that image and veneer and illusion were the most important things in America. And and actually, he he cultivated that into a gig playing a successful businessman. Like he became the living embodiment of a failed businessman, but who was seen as a success because America needed a meritocracy, right? We needed to believe that the rich and the powerful were rich and powerful because they were competent and capable. And because that story, and by the way, that's the other thing. It's such a long story. Like you have to go back to the beginning of America. You have to go throughout like all the movements of power and capitalism and politics 
And eventually you get to Donald Trump's life and all of a sudden you start to realize that America has started to sort of inverse itself and sort of swallow within itself and become something new and twisted and weird. And so this moment seems inexplicable because it seems so shallow and on the surface. But what has actually happened in the past few years is a massive indictment of what America has been and what America is. And so I, I completely agree. I think it's one of the grandest stories that we've ever seen and one of the most disturbing stories as well. And that story, I think, how it gets told and whether it gets told to its completion is going to make the difference to what the future looks like and, and what kind of a society we end up with. Because if we continue to propagate these uh, these mythologies that aren't real, I mean, that that is shown in, in countries around the world. It always leads to fascism and totalitarianism. It's when a country is absorbed with those mythologies and they can't find their way out and determine what is real. And that's why we're at this current moment of societal and political crisis. Yeah, well, yeah, I know there's like the the um, the term that you use is the noble lie, uh, or at least one of the terms. And, you know, uh, the, the, the new book is called American Rule, and it feels like an... Uh, and like a personal act of investigation, like you were trying to go back through the historical record to try to piece together what the hell happened and how we ended up at this place. And reading it, I was struck by, because I like to think of myself as being a, a realist and clear-eyed, you know, I think we all, or most of us like to think of ourselves in this way. But then I was reading back through uh, the early history of this country in particular up to the Civil War and like one after the other, there were these like kind of cherished myths that I didn't realize I cherished so much that you were just popping like bubbles. Like oh, even Abraham Lincoln, I was like, even Lincoln, you know, like we sort of need our heroes, right? It made me realize how emotionally it can be easy to get caught up in that. Even if you're somebody who likes to fancy himself a skeptic or whatever, like it, uh, when you really get back in and you dig through the history and you read what was written and what was said, um, you know, you can often walk away feeling sobered. Yeah, I have to tell you, when I started looking and, and you know, I started with the, the founding of the country and I thought I had a decent understanding of the founding. Like, I thought I would find, you know, some racism and some, you know, classism in it. But then, you know, it was like almost immediately when I started looking at historians and I realized that, like, the framers of the Constitution were not authorized to write a constitution. Like James Madison just took it upon himself to write a constitution. And everybody who showed up at the so-called Constitutional Convention was like, I don't I don't think we have the authority to do this. And he's like, screw it, we're going to do it live, you know. And, and then they just went ahead and did it. I didn't know that. And I didn't know that it was, you know, so specifically after the idea of white aristocratic power, that that was explicit in the conversation and in the actual framing. And then you move forward. And I'm with you. I when I found out about Abraham Lincoln and, and by the way, for people who haven't read the book, like a few things about Abraham Lincoln, like he said multiple times in public in speeches and debates that he believed in white supremacy, that as long as one race was going to be seen as superior to another, he wanted the white race to be seen as superior. And then eventually he tried to convince freed slaves to leave America, that there was no no way that white Americans and black Americans could live together in harmony and was absolutely shocked when he found out that black Americans wanted to live in America. 
there were even these um, unfinished projects where, you know, he, he tried to, to, to get them to leave. At one point, he was trying to work with British shipping agents to get them, you know, taken away from America to create a white ethnostate. Now, for me, when I found that out, like, I, I, I'm telling you the truth, man, I had to go for a walk. You know what I mean? Like, it, it was just one of those moments where it was so overwhelming, I had to go for a walk. And I was like you. I was like, why am I so heartbroken? And I, I, I was raised in Indiana. Right. Me, and, me, and, as was I. I don't know if you recall that, but I, I was raised. Oh, in... that's right. We're, we're both a couple of fellow Hoosiers. Right. So we're raised up. And, and because, you know, I, I think Abraham Lincoln, like, took a stroll through Indiana for, you know, a heartbeat, you know. So now that it's like land of Lincoln. Um, you know, we, we, we start to define ourselves based on these stories and these mythologies. And, and we start basing a lot of our identities on the fact that we're Hoosiers. Right. And the fact that like Abraham Lincoln is intertwined and Americans see somebody like Abraham Lincoln as a secular messiah. Like it's, he's actually been cultivated into a, a savior type figure that when just when you think that everything is terrible in America or that everything is problematic, you can look at Abraham Lincoln and say, well, at least there was, you know, this president who who did what was right and he did do what was right but that doesn't mean that he was perfect it doesn't mean that he was infallible it doesn't mean that he was he he was beyond questioning or criticism and and unfortunately those mythologies the idea that that the founding fathers were perfect that abraham lincoln was perfect which are laughable you know really on their face but those mythologies actually carry a lot of sinister weight. They keep us from questioning power. They, they keep us from questioning white supremacy. And they keep us, unfortunately, underneath the, the thumb of the wealthy and the powerful. Well, I was thinking, too, because you know, your take on the history of this country is a lot more critical um, than the kind of history that is often presented on television, for example, especially when I'm thinking of like panel shows and roundtables. There seems to be kind of a gloss and like this sort of I'm thinking of like a like a John Meacham appearance on Charlie Rose or the 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 round tables with Doris Kearns Goodwin where she's telling these great stories about FDR and Lincoln and stuff. And I feel like that's a kind of version or a take on history that plays well on television. If you get somebody up there like yourself or like Howard Zinn, the late Howard Zinn. Uh, you know, people start to change the channel because they're going, wait a minute, somebody's somebody's popping the bubble. Somebody's taking my myth away from me. It, it can be discomforting. And do you have a sense of that in our media culture as well? The way that, you know, these myths are, um, are uh, fostered and um, carried forward, you know, and, and propagated. If, is that the word? You know what I'm saying? Because it seems that way. It seems like there's a tension between the two. Yeah, I, I, I call it conventional history. Like, it's the idea, um, you know, it's like if you turn on CNN or something and they have like, I don't know, a, a documentary series called America. And, you know, like when you get into the 1980s, they'll show Ronald Reagan saying, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And then the wall falls. You know, it's amazing. Ronald Reagan said to tear down the wall. And that's why the wall fell. And what that actually obfuscates, of course, is unbelievable amounts of history and politics and economics and like a ton of like, you know, material that is sometimes inspiring and sometimes is troubling and other times is, is a mixture of both. I, I, I'm glad that you brought that up, by the way, uh, about like Meacham and Goodwin. It's like there is this story that they are spinning about America that will acknowledge that there have been problematic moments, but they're always talking about the better angels of our nature, which, by the way, 
is completely spun through with this idea of American exceptionalism, that we are a country that has chosen to do great things and will occasionally falter. But listen, we are on the on the right side of history and of the universe. And I have to tell you, I it's funny you ask this, because the other day I had to do this um, like radio tour where I was going around talking to people, you know, and it was like, you know, the afternoon drive in shows or whatever. And like they 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 would ask me questions about the book and I would talk about things like the founding fathers or Lincoln or even the fact that we had we had a fascist movement in this country in the 1930s that you cannot deny existed and really points to why we're in the position we're in now. And I could just hear some of them just being like, oh, OK, <laughs> you know, I I could just feel them sort of reaching for their soundboard, you know, and finding like uh, like a foghorn. Like, and, and the problem is that those mythologies sort of smooth out history. Right. And real history, like how things have actually happened, has been relegated mostly to academics. You know, if you go and you talk to like a historian about American history, these are the stories that they talk about. It just so happens that academics have been largely siloed from American culture, right? They've been sort of silenced and kept away from people. But I understand that it makes people feel troubled and it makes people feel anxious and maybe maybe even bad at times. But when you smooth out history to the point where you take out these nuances and you take out the, the disturbing truths of it, you reach a point like, I don't know, 2020 A.D., where America seems completely inexplicable. And, you know, there's no way to explain what's going on unless you actually go back through that nuanced, troubling history and you realize, oh, this is how we got here. We've been here before. Here are the ways to get out. The problem is that conventional history, that, that idea of American exceptionalism does not teach us that America is vulnerable to things like Trumpism and fascism, and it doesn't teach us how to be aware of it and how to get out of it. Okay, so how? Like, let, let's press fast forward, just because we have the election uh, a week, less than a week from now by the time this airs. And, uh, you know, we are at, a, I don't think you would disagree, a very perilous moment, like extreme peril. And... I don't think, you know, Mary Trump, you mentioned her. She said the other day uh, in a media appearance, I saw it quoted in print, that if Donald is, you know, if he wins re-election, democracy's kaput in America. Like, it's going to be a, a true dark age. Um, I don't disagree with that take. I think that if he somehow holds on to power, uh, he's going to go whole hog into authoritarianism and, you know, packing the courts and... He's going to fire Christopher Ray. He's going to fire Esper at defense. He's going to, you know, make sure that he's got his lackeys in these positions of power throughout defense and law enforcement and intel. And then he'll be un- completely unfettered. You know what I'm saying? And that's a horrifying prospect to consider. Uh, am I am I too dark in my thinking or too light? <laughs> uh, I, I I would say first and foremost that you're not too dark in your thinking. I, I I would even go so far as to say that I think the circumstances are even more dire than that. Because right now what you're talking about is is what a second term president might do, right? Which is to make sure that the government continues to go the way that that he or she might want it to go. We're looking at a president who has not only dismantled democratic institutions, but has just pulverized them. We're looking at a president who has intentionally over and over and over again, uh, 
more or less caused the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people by denying his political rivals life-saving supplies, by playing politics with uh, a, a generational pandemic, and on top of that has completely destroyed reality as we know it and turned it into a weapon. If Oh, and by the way, I, I almost completely forgot, has engaged in widespread corruption and has inspired uh, asymmetrical violence among his followers and has turned every situation into a tinderbox. If he is reelected, on one hand, if he is reelected and is given affirmation by the voting public, that just legitimizes all of that behavior. It says this is something we understand in America. And on top of it, it says, you know what? We're totally fine with having foreign influence in our elections. We're totally fine with the wealthiest people gaining more and more control. And on top of that, throwing the poorest people out and out into their jobs in the middle of a pandemic, telling them not to wear a mask and basically watching them die off. If he gets reelected legitimately, that that's a nightmarish scenario. And that almost gives a mandate for those things to not only to continue, but to increase. If he manages to hold on to power and, and doesn't actually win an election, that's a whole different scenario. That is that, at that point, you, you have reached a point where and, and this is a little bit in the weeds, but I, I, I hope people will follow on this. Wait, and I want to just stop. You mean if Biden were to actually win, but Trump were to not cede power somehow or, or if he were to somehow use the courts to to steal the election, basically? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, 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 and I, I want people to try and follow on this for a second because this is weird. But we have to understand this in order to understand where we're at and what we face. Right now, I assume for the people who are listening to this podcast and listening to this conversation between you and me, they look at all these conspiracy theories, these paranoid rantings and ravings upon, you know, within the American right, and whether or not it's Trump, Republicans, uh, QAnon believers online, you know, Fox News, OANN, all of that stuff. I understand that it's laughable and I understand that it's so bizarre that you look at it and you're like, what is this madness? But there comes a point with alternate realities and with conspiracy theories where they're just absorbed into culture. Reality is malleable. And so if we reach a point where the, the levers of power are taken over by people who peddle these conspiracy theories and paranoid fantasies, if they manage to hold on to power and proliferate those conspiracy theories, which, by the way, are all about an American left that is engaged in traitorous activity, trying to destroy the nation, uh, in some cases are satanic, they're child abusers, they're sex traffickers, all of those things. If they manage to hold on to power and continue to frame their opposition, whether it's on the left or even on the right nowadays, as traitors and as, as conspirators against the nation, that reality could become reality. And that sort of a situation is incredibly dangerous because what we've seen in America and in other countries around the world is when that sort of reality clashes with the reality of a group that has been undermined politically, there is a, an incredible chance of not just sectarian violence, but of asymmetrical civil war or civil war, or we even have moments of genocide that, that unfortunately really reflect what we've seen in this country over the past couple of years. So I would actually say that we are on the precipice, and, and by the way, I'm not without optimism. I think we're on the precipice of a real potential for something good and an amazing sea change in this country. Oh, good. But we're also on the precipice of something really ugly, if we're not careful. Yeah, no, I feel the same way. I mean, or at least I want to feel the same way. So let's talk optimism. Uh, yeah. I think right now, 
you know, I don't, I'm, I'm a bit of a superstitious person. I don't like to be too superstitious. Like I'm looking at the polls. I've been following this all, you know, I've been following politics my whole adult life and I've been very intensely following the Trump presidency and everything I know about presidential politics leads me to believe that Joe Biden has a, a, a good chance of winning, uh, in a fair fight, assuming the votes are counted. Uh, do you agree? Do you feel positive about his chances? Yes. I, I, I think right now, if I was a betting man, I would put all of my chips on Joe Biden winning in a free and fair election. Uh, in fact, I've, I've had people reach out from the Trump campaign. And, and this is how bad it is in the Trump reelection world. We've reached what I like to call the rats escaping the sinking ship phase of a campaign. So this always happens whenever people think they read the, read the writing on the wall, their campaign is going to lose. You start having a lot of people who are worried about their future occupations and their future jobs and their future positions. They start leaking information. They start pointing fingers. This person's responsible. We couldn't control the candidate. The message was a failure, yada, yada, yada. We've reached that point where they are starting to leak things like internal polls among the Trump reelection campaign. There's not a poll, whether it's with the Biden campaign, the Trump campaign, the DNC or the RNC or any of the, you know, constellations of think tanks and strategy groups. Nobody has it where Donald Trump has anywhere near a 50-50 shot of winning this election. The question, though, is whether or not the machine that the Republican Party and Trump have created, and they've created a, a very strong anti-small-D Democratic machine. Uh, and, and we've seen like traces of this. They've already started talking to electors in the different states about whether or not they can overturn you know, the will of the people or the popular vote. There's a very real possibility this gets thrown into litigation. There's a very real possibility that we see intimidation and violence at polling sites. Misinformation has already been flowing like crazy. So as of right now, I'm very optimistic that Joe Biden would beat Donald Trump in a free and fair election, but it remains to be seen whether or not that's what actually takes place next week. Yeah, I, I, I worry a lot about Florida. Florida just seems like a corrupt... It seems like the most easily corrupted of the important states. And I think Ron DeSantis is a, a bad actor. I don't trust him as a steward of small D democracy as far as I could throw him. And so I feel like if Trump wins Florida and then I guess Pennsylvania, I'm a little less uh, pessimistic about. But those two states, maybe North Carolina, that's the tale of the tape, I think, um, is to see how those states go. And I worry a lot about... Um, you know, the voting processes and the tabulation of votes being corrupted somehow. You should. I mean, for, first and foremost, I think I think you and I were uh, watching the TV back in 2000, you know, when, when the will of the people was completely subverted. I mean, and, and, you know, to look at it, you can understand, like, all it takes is a bad actor for all of this to go awry. And, and, and you're, you know, you're referring to uh, the Bush versus Gore election of 2000. Bush v. Gore. And then, of course, when you throw it into a court system that has been manipulated and packed by Republican maneuvering for decades now, all of a sudden, all, all it takes is the wrong ruling at the wrong place for everything to get incredibly screwed up. So I, I, I am very, very skeptical about whether or not this election, because I, I think that there is this narrative that is taking place right now. And and. You know, we have to be very careful about what the, the media sort of portrays because they're telling a story, right? They're always telling a narrative about a story. The narrative right now is 
yeah, Donald Trump is is an authoritarian. He's anti-democratic in nature. And yeah, he probably would screw around with the election. But listen, I think Joe Biden's going to win this handedly. So maybe he'll just get on his horse and ride off into the sunset. I think that's a dangerous narrative because there are so many things that can happen within an election. And I have to tell you that Donald Trump and the Republican Party, uh, this project that they have been a part of over the last few years, it is so close to completion because the Republican Party primarily, they, they, they can't win elections anymore. They do not have electoral viability outside of the Senate, which is, of course, set up in order to privilege people like the Republican Party. They're not going to let go of, of power this easily because just because there's like an overwhelming mandate for the opposition. They've already shown that they're more than happy to disenfranchise, to peddle misinformation, to engage in intimidation and violence. I, I do not believe this narrative that if we simply vote enough for Joe Biden, that there is no danger in this election. I, I think that is a very simplistic narrative that hides a lot of danger. But if Biden wins Florida, Pennsylvania, Texas... Like if the if the landslide is large enough, it becomes a lot harder, I think, for Trump to litigate and to claim that there was some, you know, some sort of uh, corrupt process or something. I think that that is logically true, but I think in Trump's world, it's not about logic. One of the things that we need to understand about Donald Trump, and this is one of the reasons why I've been talking a lot about fascism and, and, and the uh, the basis of fascism. So fascists, they operate on this idea of deeper truth, right? So like, for instance, when you and I listen to Donald Trump speak, we know he's lying. You know, we, we, we you know, as, as he's speaking, like the Chirons are fact checking him, or we have seen something happen that he is now uh, saying the exact opposite of. We understand that he's lying. Even some of his supporters understand that he's lying. But Donald Trump is intuitively an authoritarian, which means that he is possessed of what you would call a deeper truth that is beyond empirical evidence. So for instance, in 2016, I don't know if you remember, he lost by 3 million popular votes. Almost immediately, he started talking about voter fraud. Well, what was the number that he believed was, was fraudulent voting? 3 million. Right. It was it was the exact same number. So for Donald Trump, it doesn't matter how much he would be beaten by. It would simply be more proof that the fix was in. The problem with the American right. And, and, and I have to tell you, I think there is a and this is another thing I'm optimistic about. There is a part of me that hopes that Donald Trump is beaten so sufficiently and so obviously that his narcissism turns on and it becomes a sour grape situation. Where he's just like, well, I didn't want to be your damn president anyway. This country sucks. Right. And then he re he resigns in early December and Mike Pence is a lame duck, you know, president for like a month. That is the best case scenario. So he's like, I didn't want to do this anyway. And then he becomes an ex-president, which is everything that he's always wanted. But I do have to tell you that the American right, even if Joe Biden, if Joe Biden won nearly every state except for, I, I, I don't know, Alabama, right? The American right is only going to see that as further proof that there was a fix in in the election. I actually think one of the, the biggest undiscussed narratives right now and stories that we need to keep an eye on is the fact that if Joe Biden is elected president and if it is a landslide type election, we're looking at a radicalization in the American right who will believe that the election was stolen from them because their reality doesn't match up with the reality of the election. We could be looking at a really fertile ground for a lot of domestic terrorism and violence. Yeah. 
mean, it's amazing. We started to go in the direction of hope and optimism, and now we're back to domestic terrorism and violence. <laughs> These are dark times. But if, like, if things go the way we hope they will go, the they always say the darkest hours right before the dawn, right? Like maybe we're in some sort of crisis state on multiple fronts that could potentially, and this is another narrative I see uh, in the media a lot, that, you know, this could be um, a truly transformative presidency for Biden. He would have the opportunity to do a lot because we are in such trouble and we've been through such uh, craziness and trauma as a country. Uh, do you have like any sense of uh, hope and optimism there? Like I, I kind of find, I find myself sometimes making the argument, not with like total conviction, but with at least some sense of, of hope that despite Biden's past as a, you know, everyone's always like, Oh, he's a centrist. He's a neoliberal. He's a conservative. He's a corporate Democrat. You know, there's all these criticisms levied at him and not always uh, without merit. You know, you could look back to his record and, find flaws for sure, or at least from my perspective, you could. But, you know, I know from my study of history, which is, you know, it's limited, but it's um, it's not totally insignificant. I know that, it, you know, it's not always some person with completely pure politics who is able to actualize change. You know, you don't have to look any further than Lyndon Johnson to understand that. So, like, what's your take on Biden and what would be like, do you like, where do you find hope in, in thinking about his potential administration? Well, I'll, I'll start with exactly where you went. I think the ceiling for a Biden presidency is Lyndon Johnson, because this, of course, was a president who had no interest in civil rights until he got into the position that he was and he realized that there was a need for it. And, you know, he did the right thing. It sacrificed the South to the Republican Party and led to a giant schism. And in part, one of the problems that we have right now, that this big giant gap in reality between the Democrats and the Republicans. I think that's the best case scenario. And I am hopeful for this reason. At least in the past few years, Joe Biden has shown an ability to listen and to admit mistakes. I listen and and before I even say any of this, and this should tell you part of the problem with our political reality. We have turned into a trench warfare type society where if you're on one side, you think that your leaders are perfect. And if you're on the other, they're perfect and you will not accept criticism. I have to tell you that Joe Biden is one of the architects of the modern police state. He's one of the architects of the, you know, the modern era of mass incarceration. These are things that he has done wrong. And, and these are problems. He's engaged in a lot of these games that have got us to where we are. Well, in recent years, if you actually listen to him, he not only talks about it in a way that is politically advantageous, he talks about it in a way that you can tell that he actually considers it. You know, he actually has thought about his past and what he has done. And there are these moments where, like Kamala Harris, I believe, like was one of the biggest critics of, you know, his past in terms of, of incarceration, in terms of these racial policies. It was obvious that he took it to heart and he has thought about it. And, and I will say one of the most optimistic things about the Trump era is this. Donald Trump has been an incredible Rosetta Stone. He has made very clear, going back to how we started this interview, he's made very clear that the meritocracy is broken, 
that you don't become rich and powerful simply because you are competent, capable, intelligent, and and ready to assume power, right? Uh, you know, it's the real emperor's clothes type situation. He's also made very clear that America is riddled through with white supremacist, patriarchal um, power and control. I think by looking at him and watching the past few years, I think even Americans who weren't ready to have discussions about white supremacy, patriarchy, and power and control are starting to consider these things. I, I, I was really optimistic, particularly during the Black Lives Matter movement, that I believe polls show that in the middle of it, 70% of Americans at one point, which is almost impossible to get 70% of Americans to agree on anything at this point, understood that um, law enforcement and American society had a problem with white supremacy and a problem with racial inequality. That's because of Donald Trump. That's because his example has led us to question these things and start to destroy these things. I think there is a possibility that if Americans don't just accept a Biden win as the end, but they accept it as the beginning of a larger battle, I think that we could see a major, major moment of change. And that's what we have to realize is that, number one, we, ha we have to be Donald Trump in a week. After that, we have to reconfigure society in major ways and reconsider who, we, who we've been and where we're going. So I, I am very hopeful in that regard, but it's going to take a lot more work than simply going to the polls. And like, you know, I can get frustrated sometimes because I'll think to myself, like, well, what is it ever going to look like? What is a healthy country ever going to look like? Because if you use the country... Um, like as a metaphor for the individual, or you think about it in terms of an individual, it just seems like America's mentally ill. You know, like we're a, it's like we're a person who has this really ugly past. We've sinned a lot. We've done a lot of awful things, but we can't really admit it to ourselves. And we might be traumatized. Uh, you know, like uh, I just think of it like that. You know, it's like, oh, wow. Like, what does it take to get this country or this individual? healthy. It seems like we need a lot of couch time. Uh, and it seems like we need, like there have to be reparations, not just in the sense of civil rights and um, like racial reparations, but we have to own up to our sins. There has to like be a, a, a confession made. There has to be an, uh, an honesty about it and a transparency. And I think in the absence of that, I don't see how you move forward into something like significantly newer and better. Well, I'll start by saying this. I believe we're in the midst of not just a political and a societal crisis. I think we're in the middle of a mental health crisis. I think one of the reasons that you have a lot of people who have flocked to Donald Trump is it's a willful, angry delusion, right? There are a lot of people who are like, no, everything's fine. Everything's totally, totally fine. And I don't have to reconsider who I am. I don't need to reconsider white privilege. I don't have to reconsider male privilege. Things are fine. They were great until you started questioning things and you started talking about, you know, racial and economic insecure or uh, inequality. I think that that is one of the reasons that people flock to Trump is that they actually get very, they get very lost in the idea of who they are versus who they present in society. Um, I actually wrote the, the previous book I wrote was called The Man They Wanted Me To Be, which was all about masculinity and sort of like the difference between men, who, who we are on the inside and who we project. 
And Donald Trump is the perfect embodiment of that. This is a person who talks about strength and power and being strong. And this is a guy who walked out of a 60 minutes interview because they were asking tough questions. You know, it's this big, giant, weird facade. And that's actually what you find in fascism is you find a group of people that are angry. They feel powerless and directionless and they start flocking to something larger than themselves. Right. If you look at fascism and, and fascistic movements, it's all based on these like overt expressions of masculinity and power and strength and the idea that, no, I'm not vulnerable. I'm not scared. I'll be a part of something larger than myself. Well, I've talked to a lot of people who have recruited for neo-Nazi groups. I've talked to people who have recruited for, you know, KKK groups, like all of these and, and white terrorist cells. And they tell you that what they do is they go after people who feel vulnerable, scared, and directionless. These are people who don't feel like they are a part of society. They don't feel like they have any career opportunities. They feel stalled. They feel scared. They feel alone. By the way, they learn this from Al-Qaeda and ISIS, just to give everyone like an idea of the mindset of all this stuff. I think the way that we get better is it's not about a magic wand. It's not about suddenly saying, okay, America is better and we're all fine. I think it has to be done in parts. I think that we need something of a reconsideration of how America works. We need something like, I don't know, the Civilian Conservation Corps that will get some of those people who could become fascist or some of those people who would become extremist or Trumpist or whoever, that they would have some sort of an engagement in society so we can stave off I don't know, more mass shootings and, and you know, terrorist acts and, and these big giant authoritarian movements. And wait, I think wait, wait, I want to I want to interrupt you. What's the Civilian yeah. Conservation Corps? Is this a thing? Yeah, the Civilian Conservation Corps. And, and this is one of those things you go back into the 1930s. We have to understand that America has been on a precipice like this before. Um, after the stock market crash and, and the, the Great Depression, Americans started to actually become really enamored with fascism. We had tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Americans who flocked to authoritarian movements. In fact, you actually have the American Nazis. Uh, the American Nazi Party holds a rally in Madison Square Garden with over 20,000 members there. You have Charles Lindbergh, who starts running on um, or almost runs for president president with the America First movement. He starts telling people that we should be joining Hitler and, and, you know, in order to protect white supremacy. And one of the things that makes a difference is that Franklin, Franklin Delano Roosevelt creates all of these New Deal plans, including the Civilian Conservation Corps, where they, you know, they're taking unemployed, frustrated young men and they send them around the country to build bridges and parks and work on infrastructure. And so I think if we could have a reinvestment of American resources and a revitalization about what America is, as opposed to make America great again, which is returning to the past, I think if we could have a vision for the future that is healthier and better and more real and more human, I think that we might be able to get around the more extremist parts of this stuff and the anti-democratic stuff. And we could try and figure out a way to be a better nation. I, I think these are the ways that we have to move in order to try and stave off what, what I would call the nihilistic abyss. Yeah, I was listening to a podcast this morning um, and the person talking was it was kind of like a Buddhist conversation. And the person talking was using this metaphor of uh, like strong and like soft in the front and strong in the back is like kind of the way you want to be. Like you want to have principles and you want to be, you want to have a certain toughness and resilience, but you also, 
and you want to have a sense of conviction about what you most deeply believe in, but you want to remain soft in the front so that you're not attacking people or getting self-righteous or presenting to the world some sort of like, uh, you know, uh, like, uh, what's the, like aggressive, like unnecessarily or overly aggressive uh, posture. And I think like the, the reverse is true in Trump land. It seems very obvious to me, uh, like very strong in front, but very weak in back. And you have to look no further than this 60 minutes interview where if you watch the tape, like the guy just wilts, you know, he just completely, uh, shuts down and turns into an infant when he is, uh, presented, especially with a woman. I think there's something about a woman questioning his authority that really gets his goat, uh, or a minority, I suppose. But, uh, you know, I see this with him and women often in his press conferences. And, you know, this is not somebody who, has true strength in my view. This is somebody who presents as having true strength in this kind of puffed up superficial way, but he's like the typical bully, you know, when you punch him in the nose, he, he just runs away and cries. Yeah. And you know, I, I've, I've talked about this a lot in the past, but Donald Trump reminds me a lot of men in my family and men that I've been around who you know, it's like you'll, you'll be hanging out with your family and they'll be in the kitchen talking about how many women they've been with, how much money they've made. Maybe they'll be cleaning a gun or two as they're doing it and <laughs> they'll be bragging about themselves. And then they'll walk out of the room and everybody left in the room is just like, oh, he's so sad. I just feel so bad for him. I hope I hope he finds whatever he's looking for. But the problem is that that is the man who is in charge of the country. And and we do this thing where we, we don't like to admit that we're influenced by outside things, right? We're all rugged individuals. Well, the sad truth is that the president of the United States, how they behave and their worldview leaks out into the world. It influences how we see the world and how we behave. We now live in Trump's America. We live in this trench warfare type situation. And, and it creates this, this atomized society. Right. Where it's like those people are out to get what you have. And if you let them, everything's over. Right. And so as a result, you live in this reality where you have to vote for him, even if he hasn't done anything to help you, even if your relatives are dying of COVID, even though your, you know, your premiums are going up and your life is falling apart. You have to win a cultural battle. What you're talking about, the idea of like, you know, having that 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 sort of approachability and malleability and then maybe a little bit of force behind is actually, I believe, how we have to move forward with this. Because one of the things that fuels Trump's worldview, and as a result, the worldview of the right, is this idea of perceived persecution. The idea that if they're not winning, right, in a zero-sum game, they're losing. They're falling behind. And so it, it, it doesn't even have to be something that they benefit from as long as the other side is upset or whatever. And so then you have a creation of an atomized society where, you know, I, I, I've been walking around my neighborhood over the past couple of days. And like you see, you know, one house puts up a Trump sign and then another house puts up a Biden Harris sign. And then all of a sudden the house with the Trump sign puts up 16 more Trump signs. You know what I mean? Where it's like a battle between <laughs> neighbors. And we've reached this fever pitch in America where we actually have this developing mythology. We have red America and blue America. And one group believes that the other group is out to destroy society and is involved with George Soros and, you know, Marxist revolutionaries. 
And the other side understands that there's an anti-democratic flavor to the movement on the right. Donald Trump influences that. And that overcompensation and that aggressiveness and the bluster, all of that stuff, it creates in America a really fertile ground for things that we've seen here and in other countries, again, that leads to sectarian violence and possible civil war. Yeah, it's danger. It's a dangerous mix. And I feel like... Um... I feel like in places like you're in Georgia still. I remember last time we talked, yeah. you were in Georgia. So you're you're there in a swing state, and you're in the South. So that's a unique spot to be. Um, I feel like having talked to a few people who traditionally uh, lean right in their politics, I, I do walk away, and I should asterisk this and say that like these are these are more, maybe more reasonable people than like the super hardcore MAGA, like red hat wearing person. Like that's not who I'm talking to. I'm talking to people who are like, I just don't want my taxes to be raised. You know, like that kind of Republican. And uh, I feel like there's a malleability and like more movement towards uh, a more liberal or progressive vision by those people than I've sensed in the past, which gives me some hope. Um, but I think then you have the other side of it, which is those super entrenched people and the super, like the super angry, just, there's just so much anger. And I guess that would be fear, right? If we're going to get, uh, get like, um, psychological about this, like people are just deep down in their core afraid. They're afraid of, um, being left behind. They're afraid of people discovering that they're not as tough or as strong or as successful as they wished. They're afraid of brown people, whatever they're afraid of, you know, but like that really is the core of, of the movement, is it not? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, first and foremost, I want to point out that you brought up the fact that Georgia is a swing state. I mean, let's think about that. Georgia, one of the seats of the Confederacy is now a swing state in 2020. And by the way, if Brian Kemp, our, our current fraudulent governor, hadn't stolen the election from Stacey Abrams, we would currently have a Democratic black female governor in Georgia. So that's the reality of the situation. The American right has looked at the demographics. They understand that the numbers are not on their side. They're not going to win another presidential election with a popular vote. They can only win it through the Electoral College and through driving down voter participation and disenfranchising, intimidating and, you know, peddling misinformation. They understand that their power is limited. And what we always see when a power group starts to lose power is that they start engaging in anti-democratic behaviors. They start talking about these separate mythologies and they start becoming embroiled in these conspiracy theories. And I have to tell you that conspiracy theories, from my experience, and I grew up in an incredibly poor family, factory workers, laborers, miners. These are people who are currently not just Trumpist, but they're also being radicalized by white supremacists. And they're currently becoming, you know, completely embroiled in conspiracy theories. They don't have an understanding of what is going on in politics or more specifically in economics, right? They don't understand why the factories went away. They don't understand why their small town is drying up and the only thing left is Walmart and a few fast food places. They don't understand why the jobs that maybe their parents had or their grandparents had don't exist anymore and why they can't afford to go to the doctor. And so the only thing that they have is undirected rage. These conspiracy theories take really, really complicated ideas. Like, so for instance, 
the New World Order conspiracy theory, right? Which is like one of the oldies, but the goodies in the late 18, late 1980s, 1990s. And now we call it the deep state or QAnon or whatever we want to call it. These are all based on global capitalism. But in st instead of talking about global capitalism, you replace really, really complicated economic ideas with conspiracy theories. And the conspiracy theory, all of them are always based around white supremacist paranoia. And here's how it works. There's there's a triumvirate, right? There's a group of puppet masters, which, by the way, is code word for Jewish people who are manipulating the media and the world and politics. The second part are traitors. There are people in the country who are actively working against the country, mostly liberals, right? It's a, you know, the Obama, Biden, Clinton, whatever you want to say. The third leg are people of color and white and, and people misunderstand this. White supremacists don't necessarily hate people of color. They think that people of color are manipulatable and that they are going to fall under the sway of the of the other two, the puppet masters and the traders and all this stuff. They believe that actually the place for people of color is underneath the watchful, quote unquote, paternal gaze of white supremacy. Right. So what ends up happening is you get this story that if if right now what's happening in this country continues, there will be an apocalypse. People are going to show up at your home. They're going to take your guns. They're going to kill you. They're going to kill your family members. They're going to destroy your life. You need to. And by the way, this also helps because it's been peddled by the Republican Party in order to get voters and raise money, but also the National Rifle Association, which has done it to raise gun sales and fundraising and membership, all of that. So what do you have to do? You have to vote Republican. You have to hate Democrats and you have to, you know, stock up on guns and supplies and all this stuff. So at the end of the day, the Republican Party and the American right has created an entire alternate reality. That's what Fox News, by the way, is. And that's what right wing media is. It's 24 hour conspiracy theory, new world order, deep state. That's all it is. Perpetuation of that. They've created an alternate reality where they can still win elections. They can't compete in an actual objective empirical reality. They, it has to be this paranoid white supremacist uh, type reality. And that's why people are afraid is because they do not understand how they've reached the point that they are. And they've been told that there's some sort of apocalyptic violent reckoning if they don't go ahead and vote this way and behave this way. Okay. It's like, and I don't disagree. And I, it's so depressing to consider like that things are this batshit crazy and that people are like stocking up on you know, military grade weaponry and, you know, all the rest. It's just the whole QAnon thing. Like, I can't even read about it because it's like, that's where I just draw the line. I'm like, this is so fucking depressing and stupid that I can't even, like, I have a vague idea of what it is, but I almost don't need to get into it. You know what I'm saying? And uh, it just exhausts me to think about it. But one of the big questions, and I think this is at the core of what you were just saying, and it's something that I've asked guests on this show in the past, has to do with our media. And with the uh, the way in which we live in realities or the way, especially the American right, lives in a reality that is at odds with empirical reality because of Fox News, right wing talk radio, and for which there is no, uh, you know, progressive uh, equivalent. You know, there's no left wing talk radio. It's just right wing talk radio, um, you know, when it comes to the terrestrial radio. And then you have social media, um, which are, you know, which is, uh, as we now know, like algorithmically gamed to reinforce your biases 
and to stoke your anger and your paranoia because that keeps you on the platform and, you know, the advertisers like that. So it's good for their bottom line with all of those things in mind. Uh, how do we get to a better, more inclusive, saner, more hopeful country without addressing legislatively somehow our media in a manner that is consistent with freedom of expression. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't, I'm kind of a free speech absolutist. Uh, and then I think about Fox News and I'm like, this is really damaging to the body politic. Like these people are just spewing hateful lies and it's hurting the country. Like, do you see what I'm saying? Like, have you thought about this or talked to anybody who has good ideas for how we might address this? Do we have to reinstitute the uh, fairness doctrine? Like, what is it? I think about this all the time because I think this is one of the most damning giant issues that we have to deal with. So I, I, I'll say a couple things first and foremost. I, I, I think big tech has to be legislated. And I think actually if you go back in American history and you look at the turn of the 20th century, um, you know, with the robber barons and the Gilded Age, you have this group of, of um, wealthy Americans who grew so large and so wealthy because of the technology that was being instituted after after the Civil War. They, they gained a bunch of money in terms of modernizing, you know, whether it's railroads, telegraphs, oil, all of that stuff. And they actually grew to the point where they had grown beyond the government. We have another situation like that here. We actually have, uh, because of Reaganism, we've reached this point in American history where we've given so much money to corporations and the wealthy that they are actually higher above nations in, in hierarchical structure. There's a reason why corporations don't really pay taxes anymore, because they're not national. They're international. They're not, they're like, they're a nation unto themselves. It's almost like they birthed out of the nation, you know, like in their larval stage. And now they've reached something beyond that. <laughs> so we have to legislate big tech. And one of the reasons that we have to legislate big tech is that they're not actually political. And this was something that took me a long time to understand. Because, you know, you see something with um, like Facebook, right? Everyone's like, well, Mark Zuckerberg is a secret Republican. No, he's not. Actually, when you get to a certain point of wealth and power, and by the way, Donald Trump is part of this as well. When you reach a certain height of wealth, power, and influence, you actually become what I call post-political. You're not actually left or right. You actually just want to get beyond voting altogether and get away from government so it won't impede your profit or your power anymore. Mark Zuckerberg peddles right-wing conspiracy theories because that's where the most money is for him to make. If he was making more money off peddling left-wing ideas, he would be showing up dressed as Che Guevara. Like, it, it, you know, this isn't an actual ideology. It's about a pursuit of profit. And so I think we actually have to not only legislate it, but we as a citizenry, we have a responsibility. And this is where it gets hard. And this is this is a hard thing to swallow, but I think it's really, really important. You need to understand that like on social media and social media is playing a huge role in all of this because it's actually turned all of us into brands. Right. It's turned all of us into companies where, you know, we send off. And by the way, I'm 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 in this, too. You know, I have a big Twitter following and I understand what I'm doing with it and branding and all that stuff. But we need to recognize this. When someone like The New York Times prints an article that pisses you off. Right. And you're like, oh, my God, why are you saying this? And why are you helping Trump or why are you doing this? 
they're doing it because everyone's going to share it, whether they agree with it or disagree with it, whether it makes them happy or it makes them angry. It's what gets them clicks and retweets and likes, and it you know throws up ad revenue. When everybody turns on, I don't know, Meet the Press on a Sunday morning and listens to Republicans lie and Trump supporters lie, you're giving them ratings for revenue. It doesn't matter how you feel about it, right? We have to be incredibly conscientious about where we're putting our attention and who we're giving power. Because I have to tell you, when I was covering Trump in 2016, I had a lot of conversations with reporters who understood that Donald Trump was problematic, but they were so bummed because they knew that he was going to lose the election. And they were like, where are all the tweets going to come from? Where's all the traffic? Where are all the ratings going to go? He really is the rising tide that rises all ships. And the problem is that the American economy is rigged and engineered and programmed in order to not help the country, but actually profit off of chaos and uncertainty and anxiety. And so we need to fix our economy to the point where it actually helps better people's lives and leads to a more stable economy as opposed to profits off of that sort of chaos. So you break up big, like maybe you break up Facebook or you regulate it. Um, I think the fairness doctrine sounds great. Like why did we I ever agree with that as well? Why did we ever get rid of that? Like if you're on a news broadcast um, and you're broadcasting a take on a political issue, you have to at least give some airtime to a countertake. Like that well, would go. It, it, it was gotten that... rid of, of course, during the Reagan administration, and it was all set up for the the possibility to set up the the right wing uh, ecosystem. One of the things that you end up finding actually. And this is like the hidden stuff that like only people in like think tanks know about. Um, there was this guy who's an undersecretary for Nixon. And I think his last name was Simon. But he's like one of the more influential thinkers in terms of like how this ecosystem was constructed. And he said after Nixon, he said, we're never going to win another election again unless we create our own counterintelligentsia. And so the entire right, particularly the think tanks that started uh, being birthed out from this and they started creating their own experts, you know what I mean, who are suddenly calling into question what academics were saying and what, you know, these people with their liberal ideas were saying. They started creating this ecosystem of publications and and their own counterintelligentsia. And by the time we get into the 1980s, Ronald Reagan, who, by the way, was the proto-Trump. I mean, the myth of Reagan is just absurd. I mean, he had no idea what he was doing. He wasn't interested in doing the job. They put a paper in front of him and he just set his lines. And there, that's a whole different thing we don't have time to get into. But by the time that Reagan gets in, I mean, all these people are itching and dying to get rid of the fairness doctrine so that they could unleash both publications, but also so they could create their own uh, propaganda networks through, you know, at the time it was radio, but eventually it would lead, of course, with a deregulated uh, mass media market would eventually lead to things like Fox News. So it was gotten rid of on purpose. It wasn't an accidental sort of a moment and it just unleashed a monster they didn't understand. It was purposeful in terms of creating this alternate reality. Well, we got to put that genie back in the bottle somehow. I don't see how you can get back to a saner body politic and, and just national dialogue when you have a significant portion of the American voting population getting their news from Sean Hannity. I mean, it's just like, or whoever, like, you know, Limbaugh or Mark Levin or whoever these people are that are um, trafficking in these conspiracy theories and hate mongering and white supremacy. It's just, 
It's it's well, lunacy. Well, I'll just say, since we're on the subject, and you know, since we're really talking about uplifting, hopeful things here, <laughs> I want to point out, and this is one of the things that I, I, I theorized about a year and a half ago, but I'm starting to see it come true. A lot of what you're talking about is based on what I would call market niches, right? So Fox News was created because Roger Ailes, who of course worked with Richard Nixon, uh, he decided that the Republicans needed their own broadcast network that was explicitly pro-Republican in order to maintain their power. Well, eventually what ends up happening is on Fox News, all of the personalities, they start competing over who is the most far right. And eventually, of course, you lead to a moment with like, Glenn Beck, where, you know, every day he's basically coming out and saying that Barack Obama is the Antichrist and it helps inspire things like the Tea Party. Well, Fox News, and this is um, this is something to keep an eye on, particularly over the next couple of years. Fox News isn't far enough right for the American right anymore. They're starting to question whether or not Fox News, because of fair and balanced and the idea that they're moderate or that they're, you know, real news, they're starting to question if Fox News is the, the product that they need. And of course, because of market niches, you start, and, and by the way, I, I want to point out that Tucker Carlson is getting on TV every night and just, just bloviating white supremacist talking points. That's how far right Fox News is. Well, now, because Fox News is seen as moderate, you start seeing more extreme news sources like OANN that is not only talking about QAnon, but their main narrative is QAnon. And they're starting to actually start to, you know, flirt with Donald Trump in order to say, you know what, Fox News is hard on you. We're not going to be hard on you. We believe in you. So even if Trump is beaten, there's a real possibility that there will be a further right media ecosystem that will be founded in a post-Trump presidency that will move the far right, even right, even further right. And what you were talking about with QAnon, I think there's a real possibility that the Republican Party is going to be at a precipice coming up here soon. And they're going to have to decide whether or not they embrace something like QAnon and if that actually becomes the Republican Party or not. So <sighs> what you were saying, it, it's it's not only bad, but it's not it's not static either. It only increases over time because of market niches. Uh, yeah, I just think there's going to have to be at the level of our federal government a very um, robust and no doubt difficult conversation around how we um, legislate around media and social media when it comes to the public interest. There has got to be some degree of responsibility taken by the Rupert Murdochs of the world and by you know, whoever the kingpins are of these media uh, entities. Uh, like, I don't know exactly what it will look like. I'm just, I'm not an expert, but I just don't see how we can progress in any meaningful way when you have um, millions and millions of people tuning in to, you know, OANN or whatever. I don't even know what that is. I mean, I know what it is, but like, it, it's like QAnon. I can't even go there. Like, I see OANN and I'm just like, all right, I know I know what I'm dealing with in a, in a broad strokes way. Like, I, I'm done, you know. Um, which I guess is a nice place to segue to my next line of questioning. You know, you, God, you've been a busy guy. You published, I think we talked, uh, about the, the people are going to rise. Uh, that was two books ago. And that was yeah. the first conversation that we had. And then you published uh, another book and now American rule all in the last four years, right? Yeah. Anxiety is a hell of a motivating factor. I tell uh, you, I was going to say, are you, are you juicing? Are you on Donald Trump steroids? Do you guys have the same uh, dealer? 
I, I man, I wish because I have to tell you that when he uh, when he was on the Regeneron, like he was he was getting after it. I you know I I think that was one of those moments where like he'd be in the middle of a rally and you kind of wondered if he was seeing visions of God during it. So no, I I I'm in one of those situations where you know I man, I have to tell you like before Donald Trump became a thing. And I started reporting on Donald Trump back in uh, 2015 into 2016. And again, I'm a fiction writer. I'm, I'm a fiction professor. I, I've, that's where I got trained. It just so happened that on a lark, I started going to rallies and live tweeting about it. And the next thing I knew, I was realizing that Donald Trump was dangerous and that, you know, we had a fascist movement in the country. So for the past four or five years, it, it's been one of those weird moments for me because I have had to completely, again, change the way I think about things. But I also, I obsessively want to know how we got here. You know, I, I, because now that I've seen it and now that I've started to understand it, I had to re-educate myself and sort of like, you know, fill in a lot of holes. So I, I think one of the reasons why I've had so many projects is because I have been sprinting, trying to keep up with a racing train and I, I feel like and, and knock on wood, man, I hope, you know, in a couple of months, like I can start to not have to sprint anymore the way I've been doing, because it feels like in a moment of crisis, I had to I had to do something that, that, that I had to, to try to, to, to do whatever good that I could do in the limited amount of time that I had. So, yeah, I, I'm, I've been exhausted by this thing. Yeah, I think we all have. But kudos to you for making something meaningful out of the uh, chaos and Thanks, trying man trying to channel your energies in a productive in a productive way rather than just going completely fetal which is uh you know that i think that's the tendency for most of us but i wanted to ask you because of uh the people will rise and because of you know this the way that this whole thing got started for you where you were kind of like on a whim intuitively following your nose and going to these rallies to see what was going on. Um, I think there was resonance with your childhood and with the religious upbringing that you had. I think maybe you had an informed perspective in that sense that made this movement make sense to you or certain elements of this movement make sense to you in ways that it might not for others. And you spent a lot of time in the presence of uh, MAGA, you know, both as a child, um, you know, pre-MAGA, but also like in 2015, 2016, you were there on the ground at these rallies and talking to these people. Um, I guess I'm curious as the presidency has progressed and as you have um, written other books and tried to make sense of this in other ways, if you have continued to go to rallies, have you continued to stay in touch um, you know, and to try to have dialogue with people on the Trump right. And, you know, before I forget, you also mentioned earlier that as the, uh, as the campaign has sort of gotten more and more out of control and as the polls have continued to look bad for Trump, the rats are fleeing the ship and Trump operatives are reaching out to you. Like, can you share who that is? You know, are those, are those regular conversations that you're having? Like, can you just talk about those kinds of person-to-person -person interactions and, you know, where things are for you now? Well, I I was really dreading the 2020 campaign trail. Like, I, I really did not want to get back on the road and go to these rallies. Um, I, I, I've, I've been spared that. You know, I've, 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 I've been able to avoid, because I think at this point to go into a Trump rally is sort of to just be like, yeah, I want COVID, let's do it. You know, I, 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 I've 
decided to go against that. I, I think that there are other people who are covering this. And I think when I was doing it in 2015 and 2016, I think it was a particular reason, which was that our country just treated Donald Trump like a sideshow. You know, he was something something to throw on CNN for an hour and get high ratings because God knows what he's going to say. Um, and they weren't treating it, um, you know, with any seriousness. So I think that I, I think that I played a role in that. I think that 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 role sort of played itself out in terms of talking to Trump supporters. I'm in pretty regular contact with them. Uh, there are people that I've had in the past who are sources both in the Trump campaign, who I'm not going to burn here, unfortunately. Uh, and I've had other people. I've had other people also in what I would call far right, white terrorist, white supremacist cells um, that I've talked to. I've had open dialogues. I've had sort of closed dialogues in which I've, you know, had to use like alternate accounts and alternate identities in order to like infiltrate these groups. I have to tell you that what I am finding right now is that. There are a lot of people who believe that we have reached we we've reached a terminal point. And, 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 you know, like when elections happen, there's again, there's always this narrative, right, that when you get to November, it's we're ready for the climax of the story or whatever. I think there are a lot of people right now who feel like America, the, the tension within it has reached a point where it can only be solved through mass violence. And of course, we've had we've had violence left and right. You know, we've had people killed at protests. We've had people targeted in their own homes, mass violence and, 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 and harassment, intimidation. Uh, a lot of people truly believe that they are looking at the real possibility that this is the last like sort of, quote unquote, normal American election. Um, a lot of people that I talk to when I when I talk to them as people, they will admit that Donald Trump is not perfect. They understand that he is more um, what I've come to learn is what I would call a divine agent um, within Christianity, particularly. Um, and by the way, it still drives me crazy when people are like, how can Christians support him? And the answer is power. And the answer has always been power, right? It's not about actual principles. It's about this idea of having a divine agent, somebody who is like a um, I don't know, like a Constantine, some sort of uh, a person in power who can fight for, you know, whatever you want out, out of society or to create a theocratic sort of regime. Um, a lot of people see him as completely flawed. They they know that, you know, he's he's just an absolute incompetent buffoon, but they're really happy to have somebody who fights the battle for them. So we have a lot of different converging things happening within the Trump world. It's not a simple silver bullet type situation. And it's fluid. It changes by the day. I mean, there's on one hand, you have you have the people who see him as some sort of a messiah. I mean, there was a group of people who believed that Trump's blood was going to become the vaccine that cured the coronavirus. And that really <laughs> caught that really caught fire for a little while. And then there are other people. And, and you know, again, just to, to go down a road that you know, just mentioned very briefly things people need to be aware of um, the the far right white terror cells, white supremacists, these extremists, they've made a lot of contacts around the world. There is a burgeoning global neo fascistic movement. They are in contact. They compare notes in terms of radicalization strategies. And so there is a real feeling that there is something growing that is even larger than Donald Trump. And I think a lot of them actually look at Donald Trump as just sort of a stepping stone. So a lot of people have started to plan for what happens after Trump. Yeah, that's another thing we got to deal with is like trying to shut down these like hate networks that are uh, propagating all over the place. And then um, 
I guess I'm wondering if you have come across any people who have kind of woken up from the zombie trance, you know, are like, there have to be, I know there are some people who were on board, but then came to their senses and were like, wait a minute, this isn't what I signed up for. Or somehow somebody got through to them and made them realize that Donald Trump is a bad idea. So have you talked well, to people like that who have had like a, you know, I, I'm thinking of the, mo- the movie The Hangover where you like wake up in the hotel suite and Mike Tyson's tiger is sitting there. <laughs> I Well, I, I'll say a while ago you'd mentioned that there were the Republicans who maybe voted for Donald Trump because of taxes or regulation or whatever. I The way I always explain it to people is like when I would go into Trump rallies, there would be two groups of people. Right. There would be the people down in front of the stage and sort of the, you know, the the riot pit. Right. And these (laughs) these were like the real true believers. These are people who believe in Trumpism and they define themselves by Trumpism. Then up in the stands in the bleachers are the Republicans who'd wear like elephant brooches. Or if you went to the county fair, they were the ones, you know, that were handing out pamphlets and maybe giving you a corn dog. Those people they, they, they voted rank and file in order to withhold the political and economic sort of, you know, standard, right? That, that, that's why they voted. They, that doesn't mean, by the way, that they don't have racism within their, their, their values and their decisions. They don't understand that racism is at the heart of it, or at the very, very least, they're fine with fascistic and, you know, white supremacist appeals. They make a decision about what they're doing. The Trumpists are not going to leave Trump. The Trumpists are going to be Trumpists long after Trump. This is a big, giant societal thing that we're going to be dealing with for decades. And and I, I truly, honestly believe, let's say that Donald Trump does lose in a week, and I really hope that he does, and that he leaves and he, he there's a peaceful transfer of power. There are people right now who have investigated Donald Trump and how he not only rose to power, but how he was able to you know engage in these strongman techniques and destroy democratic institutions. There are Republicans who are a lot more um, disciplined and a lot more ideological than Donald Trump who are more than willing to take up the baton and run. Right. And one thing that people need to be afraid of is this. And I and, and this is something if you want to talk about the, the battle doesn't end next week. This is something to remember. I live in Georgia. We've already had these refugees that we've forced into having hysterectomies, right? We, we've 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 sterilized them. We've you know what? We've misplaced hundreds of children. We've seen people die. We've seen people uh, you know being sexually assaulted. That whole thing is going to look like like small potatoes later on in the future when we have a climate catastrophe. And when we have a climate, which, by the way, we're barreling toward right now, right? Right. We're already seeing that this is coming. This fascism that we're dealing with right now in the early 20th, 21st century is going to fuel what happens with the millions of climate refugees, what happens with our states when they start battling over resources and state lines and refugees fleeing, you know, states that are on fire or being hit by hurricanes or any number of these issues. So that is something to keep an eye on, is what what climate change fascism could look like and why we have to beat this thing. But I will tell you that the people up in the stands, the people up in the in the rafters, the ones with the elephant brooches and stuff, a lot of them are really tired of Donald Trump. 
And a lot of them are making the decision that they don't want to go into a voting booth and have that on their conscience anymore. So I will tell you that that is part of the reason why we're seeing the polls that we are, is that a lot of Republicans who they would put up with the fascism and the racism, they're tired. They're really, really tired after the last few years. And I think that a lot of them are having a moment of conscience. It doesn't mean that there's a mass exodus from the Republican Party, but those people up in the stands, they're they're having a moment to really consider who they are. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I have family members who have, who, uh, are, have gone that route, who are voting blue, and I never thought I would live to see the day kind of thing. But um, I feel... I feel like I've played this sort of head game with myself where I'm like, man, you know, this kind of fascism is possible on the left of a political spectrum every bit as much as it's possible on the right. I tend to be progressive in my politics. I am registered. I registered as an independent when I was 18 years old just because I didn't want to join a club. I don't like joining clubs. <laughs> I, I was just like, I, I fancy myself as somebody who's just like, uh, and I want to be an independent thinker. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, but if you looked at my politics issue by issue, I'm progressive and maybe even very progressive. Uh, I have played this head game with myself over the past few years where I'm like, wow, if this, if this were to ever flip in my lifetime and if the American left were to become fascistic and were to rally around, uh, you know, kind of a cult figure and to start persecuting uh, its enemies and dealing in, uh, you know, untruths and like mass untruths, you know, would I have the wherewithal to call it out and to and to resist it? I hope that I would. Uh, I also can't help but compare. You talk about the people in the rafters with the elephant brooches or whatever. Uh, I can't help but compare it to sports fandom and college sports yes. fandom in particular. Yes. And this sort of dynamic in our politics has got to end we have to look like people and, and you know what it's human nature i think people you know we're a tribal species um i also think that when you start to identify with something it becomes incredibly difficult for a human being psychologically to disavow it people consider their political affiliation which might be one of the reasons why instinctively i recoiled from joining a club is that um, people start to tangle their identity with the team that they're on. And it's like, I'm a donkey. I'm an elephant. And I'm like, this is infantile. Like, we have got to get away from, uh, you know, identifying ourselves with a political group at that deep a level. Like, it's fine to show them support if you are generally aligned with their policy views. But, like, let's not get carried away, you know, because then you get into a situation where the political organization, like the GOP, is, like, acting totally irrationally um, and you're on board with it because that's my team and I'm just not going to leave my team. And it's like, you know, and I don't mean to just Southernize that that's, there's GOP all over the country, but you know what I'm saying? Like, it just gets really dangerous and reckless and stupid. No, it absolutely does. And, and I want, I think the idea of the sports team metaphor is, is perfect. Because it, so, for instance, I was talking earlier about like we like the idea of rugged individualism, but nothing influences me. And, you know, I am who I am. I choose who I am. And right. advertisements don't work on me. Right. And, you right. know, and, you know, when you actually look at it, you start looking at the decisions that we make. So, like, I'm a Chicago Cubs fan. Like, that's my team, you know. And like for most of my life, I've watched this team underachieve. Well, 
it also says something about me. It means, you know what? I can lose, but I get up off the mat. And that got totally screwed up, of course, in 2016 when they won the World Series. And suddenly I had to reconfigure what I thought about myself and what this team says about me. Well, you know, if my team, like, let's say the Chicago Cubs, has a player who engages in terrible behavior, right? And this happened a, a couple of years ago. There was a there was a, a shortstop for the, the Cubs who uh, got in trouble for domestic violence. Well, all of a sudden, my mind does this thing where it's like, well, I mean, that's an outlier. That's not my team. You know, that's just one guy on my team who acted badly. And thank God they got rid of him. And, that you know, that's not what my team is. When you start thinking about a legions like that, it leads to a lot of bad things. And, and, and by the way, I think one of the most misunderstood moments in American history that really now sheds light on what's going on is what happened at Penn State. You know, when we had the Sandusky affair, where we have an entire community and at a college and within a team that has this horrendous, awful thing happen. And all of a sudden people start engaging in these mind games about, well, that's awful. But, you know, we have this figure in like a Joe Paterno that can't go. You know what I mean? Like, I understand that maybe things didn't happen the right way, but we got to protect. That's our guy. We got to protect that guy. When those allegiances start short-circuiting your values and your principles, that's how you end up with the Republican Party, right? And it's when we start throwing ourselves identity-wise into what we support and what we do. I would say this for anybody who is concerned about it. If you can't find reasons to question the party that you support. And by the way, I have to tell you, somebody who I, I used to be a Democrat and I, I gave up my registration after I did the, the research on American rule. I was like, I do not want this party next to my name. That doesn't mean that you don't have to. That doesn't. And by the way, I'm going to break my hand voting for Joe Biden. You right, know, like right. I, right. Like, like, and, and like we were talking about earlier, Joe Biden's not perfect. He's not. But, but, but nobody is. Who's a good guy nobody. in American history? Yeah. Yeah. And, and by the way, that goes back to what we were talking about in the very beginning. We want to treat these figures as if they're gods. We want to treat George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln as if they're gods. Well, first and foremost, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson held people in bondage. So if they are gods, well, what does that say about your religion? Right. You know what I mean? Like right. we, we have to get to the point where we approach politics like adults. Like, so, for instance, the Democratic Party, I, I think, is the only rational party to vote for in this era. If you intentionally put a Republican R next to your name right now, you are condoning unbelievably terrible behavior. That doesn't mean that the Democratic Party is therefore the opposite. It doesn't mean that it's perfect. Right. We have to look at like something like the Democratic Party. So in this country, the Democratic Party, for all intents and purposes, is center center left. Like, we're having arguments about po political things that are just absolutely absurd. The fact that in 2020 we're having arguments about whether or not black lives matter is an indictment on this country. That's not a thing to argue, right? That's just a thing that everybody in this society should agree about. We're not having conversations about universal health care. We're not talking about things like possibly, I don't know, a new bill of rights that guarantees us a place to live and, and health care and education and freedom from fear and all this stuff. We have to start engaging in politics from a standpoint of what do we what do we want the future to look like as opposed to symbolic victories, which, by the way, the left has been very focused on. It's the idea of being on the right side of history. It's on, you know, being on the right side of an issue or we got so close in that election. And yes, we lost it, but we got closer than we've ever gotten before. 
Well, that's not how politics actually works. And unfortunately, the Republican Party has been engaged in practical politics and hardball politics. They've taken over the judiciary. They've taken over most state legislatures, right? They, they've, they've done that, 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 that raiding of power in the country. We have to move away from symbolic politics and this idea that our party is perfect or our politicians are perfect and we have to start acting as adults. And that's the, the sad truth of the matter. Yeah, we got to grow up and uh, we, we got to we got to get like mentally and spiritually healthier. Uh, it's a painful process, I guess, you know, like you like to think that there's going to be some sort of renewal or rejuvenation or movement towards sanity as a response to the time that we're in. But then, as you mentioned earlier, you have a climate catastrophe looming, the human costs of which are at a scale that I don't think most people can comprehend right now. Um when you just think about mass migration, you know, all the people who are going to be displaced in coastal cities, many of whom are uh, underprivileged or impoverished, like that is a recipe for disaster. Um, and we are running rapidly running out of time to stave off the worst of it. I think a lot of the negative effects are at this point, um, as I understand it, unavoidable. Like we're already going to rise two degrees no matter what we do. So we're headed for difficult times no matter what. But I just think that uh, it, it's an like there's so many different things happening. You have the rise of a, an authoritarian or an aspiring authoritarian president. You have the pandemic. You have the climate catastrophe looming. You have all the economic fallout of the pandemic. You have, you know, this long history of racial uh, injustice in the country you know what I'm saying? It just feels like, man, so many different, there are so many different pots boiling at the same time. And, um, we have to, like, not only do we have to grow up, but we have to do it quickly. <laughs> yes. More quickly well, we, than, we, than we typically do. We have to, we have to run after that train. I mean, that's the amazing thing is like, I, I've been trying to tell people, I, I, I think there's a three-step process. I, and, and, and it, you know, we got to boil it down into bullet points or whatever, but it makes it incredibly difficult we have to do it. We, we first and foremost, we have to get educated. We have to understand how we arrived at this point. Like all of the actual decisions that got us here, right? Because they're so obfuscated by mythology and lies and, you know, political, you know, quotes and any of these appeals that don't have anything really to do with reality. We have to get educated. And in part because the people who control all of this don't want us to know about it. Right. They want us kept in the dark about what has happened. The second thing we have to do is we have to get pissed off. I, I listen, our lives are potentially going to be shorter, more miserable and, and without the human dignity because of what these people have done. Our families have been exploited. I know that my family in particular, because they're, they're poor and they're, they're at risk. Like these are people who their lives have been shortened. Like it's nothing for, you know, a man in my family to die at like 54, you know, and, and like be used up in a factory or a mine or something like that. You need to get pissed off about it so you have the motivation to do something about it. And finally, you have to get organized. The, the thing you were saying about all of these pots boiling, when you start thinking about all of the things that you have to do and how complicated they are, it can sometimes have a really terrible effect of being overwhelming to the point where you don't even know where to start. 
right? Like it's just a big, it, it, instead of like trying to move a mountain boulder by boulder, you're trying to move the mountain itself all at once and it becomes almost impossible. The only way that there's been major change in this country is through mass organization and solidarity. We have to get back to the point where, you know, we're, we're not considering our neighbors our enemies, where, you know, we start repairing these atomized relationships that we have and we can start trusting each other and we can start organizing. And when we start organizing, all of a sudden history shows us when Americans organize and they act in concert, they win. There are these moments where we feel powerless and without agency that, you know, all of a sudden our economies are taken over, our government is taken over. And once we remember that we have power and agency through solidarity and organization, amazing giant changes happen. There's progress that occurs. Human dignity gets put front and center. And, and quite frankly, what was going on in America at the turn of the 20th century at the robber barons and the Gilded Age looks a lot like what we're going through now. And we made it through that through organization, solidarity, and, and, and citizenry. We have to remember that we can actually change things, but we have to do it fast, and we have to start doing it immediately. We need better people to run for office. We need our yes. best people to participate in, like our best, most thoughtful, intelli you know, intellectually engaged people, um, hopefully most spiritually <laughs> evolved or realized people to run and to participate and to get their hands dirty. As an outgrowth of all the work that you've done over the past four or five years, has it crossed your mind? Like, maybe I should somehow get involved, you know, in public service. Like, or do you feel like the work that you're doing as a writer is that public service? You know, I had a thought for a second about running for office. But I have to tell you, I, I dipped my toe in it for a second, and I was almost immediately nauseated by what happened. It was within like a 48-hour period. I had every lobbying group known to man, one specialist and, you know, one election, like, specialist after another getting a hold of me, trying to, like, start this whole thing up. And it was like, yeah, you have a path to victory if you do X, Y, Z, and you talk with A and B and C. And I was so disgusted by it. And on top of that, then all of a sudden I had to start thinking, why am I doing this? You know what I mean? Because the current political environment is actually really toxic. It's a cesspool is what it is. And one of the problems is most of all our politicians are either wealthy and influential and they're trying to protect their wealth and influence, or they are narcissists who, you know, need this cult of personality and they need to be, you know, public celebrities that are basically turned into like, you know, um, actors on, on our favorite TV show, The Fall of America. But I think you're exactly right. I think we have to figure out the ways that we can serve the public. I'm trying to do it with my writing and with my teaching. Uh, and and on, in, in, in the meantime, and this is, you know, this is another career, just trying to make myself a better person, which is exhausting. You know, and healing from any personal trauma and trying to heal from anything, you know, that I've done. That's a really hard thing. And I, I think through my writing and my research and through my, my personal sort of uh, attempt to become a better person, I feel like I'm doing service. But I have to tell you that we have to start participating in politics, too. Yeah. We cannot look at it as spectacle and something to watch on the TV. We have to retake power. That's the that's one of the biggest giant things that we have to do. Okay, so before I let you go, I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm going to force you to make a prediction, even though oh my God. Yeah, superstitions are uh, awful this time of uh, year in an election cycle. But if you had to predict less than a week from today, uh, when this, goes, you know, when this uh, goes live, what do you think is going to happen in election 2020? 
Well, first and foremost, I don't think that we're going to know the winner on election night. Um, I, I will tell you that by about midnight on election night, I think we'll know what the next few days are going to look like. Um, if Donald Trump comes out and declares himself the victor without any empirical evidence saying that he has actually won the election, um, we are in for a long and bumpy ride. If Donald Trump seems just kind of like over it and he's not really interested in even addressing a crowd, like one of the best case scenarios is if, you know, at like 1130 at night, we go to the Trump ballroom and there's no sign of Donald Trump and everybody's like chanting and waving flags and all this stuff. And it's just like, well, they were here until two with no sign of Trump. That's a really good sign. I think Joe Biden will win the election. I think if it's free and fair, he will win the election. But I do think we're going to see violence and intimidation at the polls. And I, I think in the in the days that follow, uh, it, it, we'll, we'll see how Trump deals with it. But I, I think Joe Biden will win the election. OK, uh, I feel similarly. I think I'm going to be keenly interested in uh, North Carolina and Florida because yep. they they count their votes fast. They've got to get all the early votes. I think all the early votes in Florida are counted by Election Day or they're received by then. So it's possible that we could see Florida called on election night, as I understand it. Um, likewise, North Carolina. I think Pennsylvania might be slower. I could have that wrong, but I'm going to be very tuned into Florida. I I was talking with I was like crunching the numbers and reading some news and thinking about it the other day, and uh, you know all the all the older people, the older voters, senior citizens that live in Florida. That's a pretty you know big um, subset of the Florida electorate. Yep. And these people are, you know, at higher risk to COVID, haven't been able to see their grandkids in, you know, unless they're just saying to hell with it and flying anyway. But, you know, a lot of people, uh, older people are really going through it with this pandemic uh, or they have friends who've died, you know, or who've gotten very ill or they themselves have been ill with it. I cannot imagine that Trump performs as well with them or with younger voters in this election. It seems crazy to me that he would be able to replicate his success in Florida from 2016, but maybe I'm wrong. You know, I don't know. No, I mean, all of the internal polls that I've seen are that there's not a place where Trump is equaling his performance from 2016. Now, whether or not that means Florida goes, whether or not that means uh, uh, Pennsylvania goes, I think we're definitely going to see Michigan and Wisconsin go back to the Democratic Party. Uh, but whether or not that means Florida or Pennsylvania goes, I think Pennsylvania will probably go for Biden. But Florida, I, I think you're right. I think Florida is going to be uh, a pretty incredible bellwether. And I, I think Arizona will be as well. Yeah. Yeah. So everybody out there, vote. That's, I think that's the last word. Just vote. Get out there and vote if you haven't done it already and uh, be safe. Uh, do you have any last words for the American voter who might be listening? <laughs> I, I mean, I will say vote, but I will say just to reiterate, because I think it's important after having these big, long, difficult conversations. Uh, we, there's hope. Like we're on the precipice of something, a, a giant sea change. It can be really terrible and it could be a fascistic, technologically uh, assisted theocratic dystopia. Or we could have a better, realer, more human future. It just it's just determined by your willingness to fight and really make the better future happen. Awesome. Well, Jared, it's a, it's a pleasure to talk with you. I appreciate you making the time. Um, 
stay safe, stay sane over the next uh, few days, and, and you know, hopefully talk to some voters in Georgia. Let's flip that thing blue. Absolutely. Thanks, Ben. Okay, folks, there you go. That's Jared Yates Sexton. His new book is called American Rule, and it is available now from Dutton. You can find him online at jysexton.com. You can follow him on his uh, very popular Twitter feed, at jysexton. The book, again, is called American Rule, How a Nation Conquered the World But Failed Its People by Jared Yates Sexton, available now from Dutton. Go get your copy. Don't forget to vote. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Every single episode of this show is available to you for free. It's a listener-supported show. If you listen on a regular basis and you have the means and you want to throw a couple of bucks in the hat, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you have something to say to me, you can email me. The address is letters at otherppl.com. If you want to take a picture with your phone of wherever you are when you're listening to this show, we love getting those photos. Send in a photo of where you listen. Where are you in space? You can also DM the photos to us on Twitter or Instagram if you'd rather not email. Don't forget that the uh, Other People podcast has gear. You can get a t-shirt, a sweatshirt, a tank top even. For listeners in the Southern Hemisphere for whom summer is uh, approaching. If you want to get some uh, apparel, just go to the show's official website, otherppl.com, and click on the t-shirt on the left sidebar. This program also has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It, too, is free. Go get the app. It's available where apps are, uh, are available. It's a good app. So I know I went on too long in the monologue. I understand. It was kind of planned. I, I expected that that would happen. But this feels like an episode where it should happen. If ever there's an, like a rationale for me rambling, I think that a week out from the 2020 election is it. But I, well, I'm not going to make a habit of it. Just please, God, make this stop. 